Now you could say that what separates the true people of God from the rest of the world is worship. The true people of God worship in a way that is acceptable, that is honoring, and that is pleasing to God. Those who are not God's people, on the other hand, they do not worship in a way that is acceptable, in a way that is pleasing, in a way that is honoring to God. So worship is really what divides the world, doesn't it? Now, worship is not just something that God's people do, though. <laughs> it's not just something they do. It is actually who they are. You see, we're not pastors. We're not mechanics. We're not doctors. Or anything else you might do. <laughs> we're worshipers of God. That is our true and real identity more than anything else. We exist to worship God. It is the preoccupation of our lives. It is our joy. It is our well-being to worship God. Now, worship is really the reason why we gather together on Sundays, isn't it? We are here to worship God. And the supreme purpose of our gathering is not uh, evangelism, it's not as good as it is, it's not reaching out to the community as good as that is, it's not even primarily about personal growth as good as that is, or fellowship, but rather the worship of our God. If you're not here this morning to chiefly worship God, then you're here for the wrong reasons. We're here to worship God. And so you could say that the failure to worship God in an acceptable way is really, is and always has been, the greatest problem in the world. Failure to worship God is really the essence of all sin. Paul makes this point in Romans 1 verse 21. Listen to what Paul has to say. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What this is saying is that they failed to worship God. That is the heart of sin. And failure to worship God is failure to honor Him as God, and failure to give thanks to Him as God. That's failure to worship Him. And Paul says that this is the very foundation of the problem. This is the foundation of all sin. It's the, it's the height of wickedness you might say. If, if, there is, if you could put wickedness on the degrees of the wickedness that someone commits, you could say that failure to worship God is the height of all wickedness. And the good news is that God has come. He has come to us. He has incarnated himself to create worshipers. Isn't that incredibly good news today? God has come to create worshipers. And we see this actually happening with the woman at the well here. Jesus is concerned about creating a worshiper. He is directing her to worship God in a way that's acceptable and pleasing to him. And that's what God is in the business of doing, of creating worshipers. And that's amazing grace today, that we can be worshipers of God is solely because of God's grace and his mercy and his goodness to us. And that's why this passage is so important. 
Jesus is teaching you and me about worship through his interaction with the Samaritan woman. He is teaching us how we can worship God in a way that's acceptable to him. And we, we really live in an age where worship is based on man's ideas, isn't it? And really, when you think about it, this is complete nonsense, isn't it? God doesn't care about what you think is acceptable worship. God doesn't care what makes you feel good in worship. <laughs> There's a lot of worship that goes on where people feel really good about it, but God absolutely abhors it and hates it. So if we're to be a healthy church, we must know how worship is acceptable to God. We must understand how to worship in a way that's acceptable to God, and we must pursue to be a people who worship God in an acceptable way. That should be our passion, should be our ambition, our drive. God, what do you have to say about worship? And let me come to you your way. So first, if you're to worship God in a way that honors Him, you must come to Him with a heart of repentance. You must have an attitude of repentance if your worship is going to be acceptable to him. And so if you look back at verse 1 through 15, you will find that Jesus has been telling the Samaritan woman that she needs what only he can give to her. That's what Jesus has been saying in verses 1 through 15. You need what only I can give to you. Uh, verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus said, If only you knew me, if only you knew the one you were talking to and what I could give you, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. In other words, you have needs that only I can meet. And so, why is she unable to recognize what Jesus is offering? Because that's the conclusion we came to, right? She cannot recognize what Jesus is offering. And so the question is, why? And the reason is, the reason she can't recognize what Jesus is offering is because she doesn't recognize that she has a need. She doesn't recognize she needs anything. She's not aware of her deep need that's inside her soul that is completely obvious if you looked at her life. So in order to help her recognize her need, Jesus exposes, or he might say brings to the surface, or confronts the Samaritan woman with her sin. Jesus is showing her, you have great needs. <laughs> Let me show you them by exposing your sin. You can see this when Jesus tells the woman to go call your husband to join with the conversation they were having. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, obviously, it would make the conversation more acceptable if her husband was there. So that's kind of sort of a reason why Jesus is saying this. But Jesus is primarily trying to put his finger on her sin. Jesus knows that she does not have a husband. Jesus knows she's living in a moral lifestyle. So Jesus is trying to put his finger on 
on her sin and expose her sin and make it obvious and clear that she has great needs that she's trying to fill in all the wrong places. So she says, I have no husband, and which is technically true, isn't it? <laughs> she, answers the tr- she answers in a true way, but ev- avoiding her sin. She is trying to avoid dealing with her sin, so she says, I don't have any husband. And that's sort of true. So Jesus responds by acknowledging that what she says is technically true, but also exposing her sin, she is trying so hard to avoid and to hide. So Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. We have said is true. So she has had five husbands, and none of them have turned out that well. Either they have died, or they have divorced her. And probably they have divorced her. But we don't know, we're not told. And the kicker is this. That Jesus says, you are living with someone who is not your husband. In other words, she is living in a moral lifestyle. She is sleeping with someone who's not her husband. Jesus says this to make sure she cannot avoid facing the reality of her sin. Jesus won't let her hide in the darkness. He brings the, what is hidden in the darkness to the light. And that's what Jesus does, doesn't he? He brings what is hidden in the darkness. We want to hide. We want to keep away. What we don't want people to see. What we don't want exposed. He brings it to the light. Now, Jesus has already told us about this woman. We have already learned about this woman. In fact, this woman is a model of the person who refuses to come to the light in John 3, verses 19 through 20. Let me read these verses, and you will see that the Samaritan woman fits this description perfectly. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and that light we know is Jesus, right? And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. That's exactly what this woman is doing. This woman is not coming to the light. She won't come to the light because she doesn't want her, her deeds exposed. Now, you don't have to be a doctor to diagnose this woman's problem, do you? She has a need that she is trying to fulfill in worldly ways, through relationships with other men, and that she cannot satisfy. And because she is unable to recognize her problem, she is unable to hear anything Jesus is saying. She has no sense of her need for what Jesus is saying. She doesn't think she needs the Messiah because she is unaware of her sinfulness. She is unaware that she's trying to fill a thirst that she has deep in her soul with other men and relationships with them. And it will never satisfy. It will never fulfill what she is looking for. She is hungry and thirsty and trying to quench her thirst in broken cisterns, as we talked about last week. That can never satisfy. And this is true of all of us. Our sin exposes our thirst and our desire to be filled. Whatever you're pursuing outside of God reveals what you're thirsty for as well and where your cisterns are. So what does all this have to do with repentance? Well, until you recognize your sin and recognize it for what it is, like this woman, 
needs to recognize you will never repent or turn to Jesus for salvation. Thomas Watson, a 17th century Puritan pastor, explains it this way. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till our sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. What this means is until you're aware of your sinfulness and you recognize it for what it is, Christ will never look great and glorious and necessary. You'll never see him to be the fountain of living water that you need. Until you recognize your sin and for the awful, um, unsatisfying, um, destructive nature for what it is, for its rebellion against God, you will never see that you need the all-satisfying fountain of living water who is Jesus. And you'll never repent of your sin and never turn to him. That's what he is saying. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said it this way, Too many think lightly of sin, and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned with a rope around his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to honor the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Repentance is turning away from pursuing that which does not satisfy. It focuses on the turning away from that which doesn't satisfy. And faith focuses on turning towards that which does satisfy, which is Christ. So faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They're not really different things. They're just two angles of looking at the same thing. Repentance is turning away from the wickedness, the unsatisfying um, cisterns that we have drunk from and try to be satisfied from, and realizing that it can't satisfy and that it's rebelling against God, and faith is turning towards Christ and finding him to be our satisfaction that, that, that brings salvation to our souls. The problem is, like this woman, who among us likes to talk about our sin? Isn't that the problem? None of us do. None of us like to look weak. None of us like to look needy. None of us like to think that we have problems that we can't fix and that we need help with. This means that talking about repentance is never going to be a popular message. People aren't going to love to hear about their need to repent. Yet repentance is essential if anyone is ever to engage in God-honoring worship. If anyone's ever to be saved, and the moment you're saved is the moment you worship, <laughs> the moment you look to him and repent and turn to him in faith is the moment you worship. You become a worshiper, and no one will ever worship God without repentance. Failure to address sin is not an option. It is necessary that we address sin. It is the loving thing to do. So the question is, does she repent at this point? And no, sadly, at this point, she does not repent. All she sees is Jesus to be a prophet. She sees Jesus to be a man of God. And clearly she has a, has, has a surfacy, a limited understanding of Jesus. And that is not repentance at all. So if you're ever to worship God in a way that honors him, the second requirement is that you worship him in spirit. Inward spiritual reality is necessary if you're ever to honor God with your worship. So the Samaritan woman wants to change the subject. And you can understand why. And now she has found a reason to. 
that she has identified Jesus as a prophet, a spiritual man. So now she has a good reason to bring up a theological point, right? Surely that would connect with Jesus, this uh, theological controversy. And so she brings up a popular theological debate about where the right location is to worship. She says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, where they worshipped has been a great debate for a very long time between the Samaritans and the Jews. There's been a great object of debate, topic I should say, of debate between them. Both believe that God has prescribed a specific place to worship. The problem is they believe that God required uh, that they worship in different locations. <laughs> the Jews believed God's word required that they worship in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans believed God's word required that they worship at Mount Gerizim. And so what does Jesus say here? How does Jesus respond to this tricky question of where to worship? Jesus responds by saying to the woman that the location or the place where you worship is becoming irrelevant. Worship is no longer about location. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. He says there's nothing to be gained about arguing about where or, or even discussing about where to worship. <laughs> it's becoming irrelevant. It's of no value to discuss this because it's not about the location anymore. Now that I have come, <laughs> Jesus instead says that what matters about worship is not location but inward reality, that you worship God in spirit, in verses 23 through 24. And what Jesus is saying there is he's explaining why you must worship in spirit. And he says, you must worship God in spirit because God is spirit. He says God is spirit, so you must worship in spirit. You can only worship him in spirit if God is spirit, right? God is a spiritual being, therefore you must worship him in a spiritual way. And that's why he says those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So what does this mean? And we can easily identify what it doesn't mean, right? This clearly means that worship is not primarily about outward locations, it's not about buildings or outward ritual or a music style or even merely about saying the right words, right? In other words, worship is not primarily about anything external that we do. So what does it actually mean to worship in spirit? Well, what it means is that it's about worshiping God requires the inward reality. It's there's an inward reality, a spirituality that's required to have worship that honors the Lord. It means that worshiping God requires the right heart attitude towards God. A right heart attitude is hungering and thirsting after God himself. And by the way, and I think it's really important that we understand this, you can hunger and thirst after God even when you don't feel it. Even when you don't feel like you're hungering and thirsting for God, you can still hunger and thirst for God in the sense that you know that he's the only all-satisfying being. That's really what faith looks like sometimes, doesn't it? When we don't feel like he's satisfied, and we don't feel like we're hungry, we don't feel like we're thirsty, but we know deep down in our heart, we know that he's the only one who satisfies. And we know that we are thirsty. 
Sometimes that's what faith looks like, doesn't it? And throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, worship has always been a matter, not merely of actions, but primarily even that of the heart. James Montgomery Boyce explains it this way, true, wor true worship occurs only when that part of man, his spirit, which is akin to the divine nature, for God is spirit, actually meets with God and finds itself praising him for his love, wisdom, beauty, truth, holiness, compassion, mercy, grace, power, and all his other attributes. Now, this is not to say, and this is really important, this is not to say that our actions do not matter, right? That's not what we're saying at all. Just that these are not central to the heart of worship, right? Outward expressions of our inward reality do matter in worship, but notice that they're outward expressions of the inward reality that's already going on in our hearts. For example, your words matter as an expression of inward reality, of the truth of God's word, as we'll look at in a little bit. This means, however, that no matter what it looks like on the outside, you cannot have true worship without inward reality. True worship always engages the heart. The words you speak, the praise you give, must come from inward approval of it. Wherever you are gathered, what matters to God is the inward reality of your worship. Now, this was a common criticism that Jesus made towards the Jews, isn't it? They seemed to get the right location and to have the right words, but they were devoid, oftentimes, of the inward reality. They missed the heart of worship and therefore worshiped God in vain. Listen to what Jesus said about the Jewish religious leaders in, this, in light of this. Matthew 15, 8. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Or how about Matthew 23, 25 through 26? Jesus said some strong things, didn't he? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Now he's bringing them to the inward reality that was absolutely missing and not there at all. Now when you see the Spirit here, you might wonder, is he talking about the Holy Spirit? I mean, isn't the Holy Spirit necessary for any of us to worship God? And I would say, absolutely, the Holy Spirit is necessary for us to worship God. We cannot worship God unless the Holy Spirit brings us life and brings life to our inner being and gives us a heart that loves him. But I don't think that's the point here. I don't think that's the point that's being made here. Regardless of what it says here, it is true that without the Spirit of God giving life to the inward spirit of man, it is impossible to engage in God-honoring worship. And that's clear throughout scriptures. The Spirit enables true worship by giving life to the inner man. And this is really what Jesus said to Nicodemus, if we can go back to John 3, verse 5 through 6, when he says you must be born of the Spirit, right? He was saying that very thing, that it must be a birth of the Spirit. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You must be born again, and that comes through the Spirit, um, so that you can worship God in spirit. And the point is this. If you're to worship God in an acceptable way, you must worship Him in spirit. Otherwise, it is not acceptable to God. Thirdly, if you're ever to worship God in a way that honors Him, you must worship him in truth. Truth is necessary if you're to honor God and worship. Now, Jesus says here, and he puts them together, 
which I think is really important that we don't separate these two things. I'm just doing this for the sake of um, a message and delivering it. But he says, not only must you worship God in spirit, but also in truth. And he puts those together, doesn't he, here? Both spirit and truth really go together. They are inseparable. In verses 23 through 24, we read these words. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what does it mean that you must worship God in truth? Well, it certainly means that you must know who you are worshiping if you are to worship in an acceptable way. This is so obvious. It shouldn't even need to be mentioned, right? Think about it. If you're not worshiping God according to who he is and how he has revealed himself, then you're worshiping someone else. You're not worshiping God at all. And God does not accept false worship, ever. Wrong thoughts of God lead to worship that is unacceptable to God. But it's not just about worshiping the right person. It's also about worshiping the right person in the right way, isn't it? We must know how to worship him if we're to worship him in a way that's acceptable. Otherwise, we will worship the true God in an acceptable, uh, unacceptable way, in a way that he does not approve of. For instance, remember Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices to God. You might say they were worshiping God. One of them worshiped in an unacceptable way, right? They were both thinking they were worshiping the true God, but one of them was acceptable and the other one was unacceptable, right? And we can go to a number of places in the Bible that say the same thing. And amazingly, in God's great goodness, and just think about the goodness of God here, because we don't always think about the goodness of God's word, that God has revealed to us who we are to worship and how we are to worship him through his revealed word to us. What a gracious and kind and good God we have. He has revealed to us everything we need to know about who we are to worship and how we are to worship him that's acceptable to him. What amazing grace he has spoken to us and given us everything we need. How valuable and how precious is the word of God to us. This means if you're to worship God in a pleasing way, it must be regulated entirely by his revelation. God's word is essential to God-honoring worship. And that's why we do things the way we do things here, right? Everything we do must be regulated by God's word. So long as worship is based on God's word, we can know that we are honoring him. And all false worship we see around us is due to failure to worship God according to his word. That's, that's where all false worship comes from. And man's ideas will never produce God-honoring worship. Many churches have turned to videos, dramas, rather than God's word. And no matter how in innovative we are, <laughs> no matter how um, much effort we put into it, no matter how sincere we are, if we're not doing it according to God's word, it is worthless to God. Man's ideas of worship are always a stench to God's nostrils. Isn't that true? So Jesus explains to the woman that this is exactly what the problem with her worship is. She was not worshiping according to the truth. 
She was worshiping what she did not know. Notice that in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, I want you to imagine the worship that goes on at Mount Gerizim, okay? Imagine the worship that goes on there. We don't know exactly how it happened or what it was like, but, but just use your imagination for a second, okay? Uh, just imagine the enthusiasm. Imagine the emotions. Imagine the sincerity of the worship that went on on that mountain. And I'm sure that was all part of the worship that happened there. And if those things were necessary, if that was the heart of worship, they would have had the greatest, most acceptable worship there ever was, I would imagine, on that mountain. But Jesus is saying, neither your sincerity nor emotions can make your worship acceptable to God. Because you don't know what you're worshiping. You're ignorant and devoid of the truth. Her worship was, in fact, false religion because it was not based on the truth of God's word. There's a right and a wrong to worship, and she was worshiping in the wrong way. Jesus, on the other hand, was siding with the Jews in his argument about where to worship. Jesus is saying that the Jews did worship according to the truth, didn't they? Whatever else was wrong with the Jewish worship, they at least had truth on their side. They were following the path of God's revelation. And that's what it means to say that salvation is from the Jews, isn't it? One man said it this way, and I, I thought it was really a good way of saying it, that they were in the stream of God's revelation, that they were following the revealed will of God as far as the truth is concerned. And God and his ways are proclaimed truthfully throughout the Jewish scriptures. And so long as she continues to worship God apart from the truth, her worship will continue to be unacceptable to God. And we can know exactly where this problem came from. The problem began with the Samaritans rejecting the, all the books of the Bible except the first five books, what are called the Pentateuch. And that is true. The Samaritans rejected all the books of the Bible except the first five. And so her worship was unacceptable because she didn't embrace the fullness of God's revelation. This is why they worshipped in the wrong place, by the way. That's why they worshipped in, in Jerusalem rather than Jerusalem. And we might not think that we are guilty of doing this, right? We might claim that we worship God in his fullness. We accept the fullness of God's word. But I would say that we are often more guilty of doing this than we would like to recognize. How often do we take one verse and we base and we camp on that verse and that becomes the only verse that we really recognize? And we often ignore the rest of them. Largely, right? We ignore, we, we memorize and cherish and love John 3.16, but we ignore the verses that talk about, but those who do not believe are condemned already, <laughs> right? And so we take the verses we love and ignore the ones we don't, we don't care about. And so some of us, we love the New Testament, but we have no place for the Old Testament, right? And so it's going to affect our worship. And we cannot ignore scriptures and fail to give God the honor that's worship, that's due his name. Every time we ignore scriptures, we will fail to give God the honor and the worship that's due his name. And this means there's so much Christianity out there, so-called Christianity, that does not know really what they're worshiping at all. And this means we must be careful that our worship is never based on some vague emotions, 
but rather based on the truth of God's word and that he has revealed to us through scriptures. You know, the truth should always direct our emotions, shouldn't it? We should be the most passionate, we should be the most joyous, we should be the most excited people in the world because we have the truth to drive us and to instruct us and to guide us. And shame on us if we're not passionate. Shame on us if we're not joyous. Because we have the truth. We should be the most passionate people. But our passion and our joy should always be driven by the truth. This is why it makes absolutely no sense to say something like this. I did not come to church to listen to a sermon, but rather to worship God. That makes absolutely no sense at all. (laughs) You see, it does not make sense because worship is always a proper response to God's word. Exposition or teaching of scripture is therefore essential to the worship that we do here. And so this woman, like all of us, once were spiritually blind and dead, and therefore the words of Jesus meant absolutely nothing to us. We were bored of God's word, and we needed a miracle within us. And God's word is boring to those who have no spiritual reality inside of them. Even believers, when we indulge in the word, in the world around us, uh, the word of God can become so boring to us because we lose our sensitivity and it loses the, the reality behind it to us. So we must be careful with the junk food of this world that we're not losing our taste and love for God's word. This is why when someone comes to me and says, what a great message you preached. I think, what a great miracle that God has performed here. Because there's nothing great about the messenger, and there's nothing great about the way I speak, and the way I craft my messages. They must have heard God's word if they heard anything in what I say. What a miracle God is doing here. Finally, If you're ever to worship God in a way that is acceptable to him, the fourth requirement is that you must worship him through his son, the Messiah. Trusting in the work and person of the Messiah is necessary if you are to honor God with your worship. Now we see the necessity of worshiping the Father through the Son everywhere in this passage, in the conversation. When Jesus claims to be able to give the living water, he is saying, I am the one through whom all worship must come. In verse, in chapter, in verse 14, I should say. Whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, I can fill you up in such a way that worship will overflow from you. <laughs> And isn't that the reality? When we are filled with the goodness of God, the result is that like a cup that is overflowing, we overflow with worship and praise and adoration of our God. And so he is saying, I am the only one that can make worship flow out of you when you drink of the water that I will give you. I am the one who gives you a heart of worship by filling you in such a way that you never thirst again. Worship comes through me or it does not happen at all. When Jesus claims that the hour is coming and now is, he is saying that worship is now centralized around me in kind of a veiled way. (laughs) Verse 23, But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
Now the hour always refers to the saving work of Jesus. It refers to his coming to us and to his work on the cross, his redeeming work and his resurrection. And so he's saying that this hour has already come. And the hour that has come means the worship is now acceptable only through him. (laughs) That I am the one who makes worship happen and I am the one who is the central reality of all worship that takes place. He came to make us acceptable through his sacrifice so that we can worship God. And he is the, it is only through his work on the cross that our worship can ever be pleasing to him and that worship will ever flow through our hearts. What an amazing Savior we have who has made us into people who not only can worship God but love to worship God and do worship God in a way that pleases him. And only because of Jesus, our Savior. He came to create worshipers. And really, we see that Jesus is the center of worship all throughout John, right? Um, Just an example would be when Jesus says, He is the true temple. (laughs) Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it again. (laughs) Right? He's saying all worship is through Him. When He said, I am the resurrection, the life, He is the one who makes worship happen, right? By resurrecting us and giving us new hearts. When Jesus said he's the one who will give the Holy Spirit, he's saying I'm the one who creates worship. Throughout John we see this. Jesus is the center of worship. When Jesus claims that salvation is of the Jews, he was saying I am the salvation that would come through the Jews. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. Now this does not mean only that the revelation flows from the Jewish people, but also that the revelation of God himself, the Messiah himself, has come from the Jewish people. And all the Old Testament scriptures point to this Messiah who would bring salvation. And all of this is confirmed by Jesus' last words to the Samaritan woman, isn't it? When he makes the incredible claim that he is the Messiah. And I hope when you heard those words that they just were like this bomb that went off in your heart. (laughs) What incredible words. Some of the greatest words in all of scripture. Listen to what he says. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. (laughs) Those are the most incredible words in all of scripture. Some of the most incredible words. He is saying, I am the one. I am the one who restores worship. I am the one who makes worship happen. I am the Savior who is the Messiah. So you and I were created for one purpose, to worship God. Have you ever thought about that? People all the time are trying to figure out why they exist, right? What am I to do with this life? What is my purpose for my life? What is the significance of why I'm on this earth? And we know the answer to all of these questions. We know that we exist to worship God. That's why we exist. This means there's absolutely nothing that you could possibly do. There is nothing more fulfilling Nothing more significant that any of us could ever do at any moment than worship God. You could feed all the poor. You could save all the orphans in the world. You name it. But worship is the greatest thing we could possibly do. And in fact, worshiping God will lead us to do those things, won't it? Worshiping God will lead us to care for others and will lead us to love and serve those around us who are in need. But there's nothing more significant you could ever do than worship God. And this means that the most important thing about you and me is whether you and I are worshiping God in a way that is acceptable and pleasing to Him. 
When it comes down to it, all that matters about you and me is whether we are worshiping God in a way that is acceptable to Him. Your preferences, your feelings don't matter one bit. What you like or don't like doesn't matter at all. What matters is what God says about worship through His Word. So let us be a people who are constantly examining ourselves, refining our worship, making sure it aligns with God's word. If your worship is acceptable to God, then praise God for his grace in your life. If it is not, then repent and turn to God. He is a merciful, a kind, a gracious Savior, and he loves to make worshipers. God is in the business of creating worshipers. And by the way, worshiping God is for your good and your joy and your well-being. You are only right when you're worshiping God. So will you worship God with me today? And let us continue to worship him throughout the rest of our lives. And then let us worship him for eternity. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we love you for your word. We thank you for your kindness in speaking to us cutting words sometimes, words that hurt, words that call us to repentance, that say that there is sin in our lives that we need to repent of. Lord, it is so hard to receive. It is so hard to take, but oh God, it is so good when we do receive it, when we do take it, when we are turned away from our cisterns of this world and look to you. What joy, what delight, what overwhelming goodness comes into our hearts. And Lord, we love to worship you. God, I pray that you would cause us to worship you in such a way that pleases you. Lord, may you cause us to worship you this week. May we be worshipers of God, and may we grow in our worship of you. We thank you, God, for guiding us and teaching us today about worship. For it is for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.